0: Blog Talk Radio Hermione Granger You're just a sidekick. Pathetic and predictable. I'm hot on your trail. Could have had a victor, but you chose Ginger Fail. I bet with one drawn, he's still just a yawn. With performances worse than Michael Gambon. Got a nimbus up your butt? Well, let's probe deeper. Never played Quidditch, but you know I'm a keeper. You must be drunk on butterbeer. Now grab a cloak and disappear. Who wants to kick this witch's ass? Hmm, I volunteer. There'll be no trouble Cause on you struggle I'll be charming and disarming While I waste this rubbish muddle I'll end this blasted truth propaganda prostitute Who thinks she's so cute With her Girl Scout salute Just a tribute Can't decide which guy's sweeter Share your bread with Gail Than stuff your mouth with Peter How does it have the poor To start a civil war? Your story's a bore Why don't you plagiarize more? It's been done before Ask Dumbledore the royale such in 1984 and furthermore if you're keeping score that's five more points for Gryffindor I'll drill this dentist's daughter here in her alma mater about to slaughter this otter even Potter knows I'm hotter I stomp career jock kick your British batop for this riddle second fiddle you're the Watson to his Sherlock turn back the clock tick tock tick tock Odds ever in my favor Cause you rap like an Evox Shock the mic like a wire You'll fry and die on a pyre Cause you're gonna get burned By the girl on fire On fire, oh, just like your dad Or the hospital you visited to film a quick ad I got the cortex to ace my subject I got that bad blood while you run with rejects These coal miner rednecks need reality checks You're just another pawn in the military complex A fashion figurehead for the underfed Brilliant, you survived, but Rue's still dead the difference between you and me is book knowledge and street smart Step to the mockingjay, you'll end up with scar marks It's like you're hijacked, you're mental, delirious We find it funny, but you're dead serious I'm the pro with a bow and the flow to overthrow Mr. Snow and his whole freaking reality show Little Miss Perfect, the one truly twisted On your parents' happiest day, they forgot you existed I bust balls like a This the smartest witch I own this bitch you still hungry in that beefcake sandwich? Broad wedding fake, baby, and your flames don't exist. So-called soul lovers need a camera to kiss. I sling unforgettable verses like unforgivable curses. What's worse is your universe isn't immersive. Your glory's only temporary. Your country is a mortuary. Mix in your itinerary. Kill yourself. Eat the berries. You did such a great job. I didn't mean any of those awful things that I said. I know, sweetie. Saucy. Aw, I
1: listened to that three times in a row before the show tonight, and I laugh out loud every time she says five (laughs) points.
2: You know, you know what though? Everybody who's listening at home, one thing I feel I should point out is that's from the YouTube chat from Whitney Avalon's uh, YouTube show, Princess Rap Battles, and it really listening to it. Does not do justice to actually watching it and seeing it. I forget the name of the actress who played Hermione's uh, Slither and Dance. <laughs> that she does after Brilliant you Alive, but Rue's still dead. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's a great line. Welcome to Long Road to Ruin, everybody. Uh, I am your host, the Mandata Reporter, and frankly, I'm feeling a little under the weather, Mr. Mark Rattledge. Uh, tonight we are uh, working on part two of four, "Prisoner of Azkaban" and "Goblet of Fire" of the Harry Potter series. Uh, those the, that laughter, that jovial laughter you heard in those comments were, of course, Sean Comer and our Harry Potter expert and special guest Alexis Haina, who I will bring on momentarily. Before I do, uh, just two things of order. I'm not going to go into a whole bunch of other tangents and 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 plugs and whatnot. I'm going to get right into talking about these movies. But I, I, I want to share a personal opinion. And uh, we can talk about this uh, over the course of the show. But uh, I like to stick with the more objective film craft stuff. So just, just strictly opinion, strictly my, just my own subjective look at these films. I, just, I wanted to get this out of the way because I feel really strongly about them. Um, Prisoner of Azkaban, it's the best. I remember the first time I saw it really liking it and watching it again uh, with sort of fresh eyes and a more critical mindset. Uh, of the four movies I have watched, rewatched so far for this series, I have liked that one to best. And in my opinion, even from a, from a craft perspective, which we'll talk about in a little bit, it, it, it's so far beyond the other three movies. Uh, it's the tightest story. It's the most interesting story to me. Um, everything else is sort of level best. You know, we talked about that in the first show, about performances and, uh, you know, visual effects and whatnot. But um, I would say in turn, in I talked last week about sort of the meanderingness of the Harry Potter movies up to this point. Uh, sort of the plot holes. I don't need to re- reiterate how much I hated Chamber of Secrets for that reason. Um, like, Prisoner of Azkaban is the opposite. It uh, it flowed so well, and it was so... The characters that were introduced were so interesting to me, and everything lined up. I couldn't find, and I really tried hard to, but I couldn't find a single thing wrong with this movie. And I don't know about the next four. I know I liked uh, Deathly Hollows 1 and 2 a lot, minus the ending. That that was just my my own personal... I wanted Harry Potter to turn into Aragorn. Um, but I think when I rewatch them with, without that expectation, I'm going to come back and say Azkaban and the Deathly Hollows movies. Goblet of Fire sucks. <laughs> I know that's controversial, and I know I'm going to hear about it once uh, I bring on my lovely guests and co hosts. But I, he, here's the thing that's a little, sucks is too strong of a word. Um, let me say this. It's the anti-Captain America Civil War for me. If you've heard uh, our review of Civil War on Damn You Hollywood earlier this year, I said Civil War was an awesome movie up until the third act where the whole thing goes completely off the rails, and Tony Stark slash Robert Downey Jr. especially not only makes poor acting choices, but the character makes ridiculous, insane choices to the point where I got completely taken out of the movie and it ruined the entire thing for me. Um, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire had the opposite thing. I watched two thirds of that movie and went, oh God, when is this gonna be over? I'm, i I rather have my fingernails pulled out. And then we got to the third. Wow. And then we got to the third act, and I was like, oh, I get it now. And it was, it, it was a weird experience to me because I watched that third act. I had to watch it twice for a number of reasons. But I I sat down and I rewatched it um, after the first sitting. And I went back and I watched the whole third act again, which is basically when they go into the maze. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And it really, and it lifts the whole rest of the movie up for me. I'm like, oh, okay, I get what this whole thing was about now. But boy, it was getting there hard. Um, And I think if I watched the whole thing again, kind of now with that fresh in my mind, I might have a better opinion of it. But it was a slog. This, this time around, um, till the third act, which was wonderful, just marvelous, simply marvelous. So now, now that I've said some wild and crazy things, um, before I bring out my guests, I want to quick share uh, just, some, just some interesting facts. If you listen to Damn You Hollywood, you know I'm really into the money, uh, and we do a whole bit about you know Rotten Tomato, uh, critic scores and whatnot. So as I said, and the reason why I brought this up is I'm sitting here uh, praising Prisoner of Azkaban and t- telling people how wonderful it is. It made the least amount of money of all these movies. Gosh, I'm a man standing on an island by his, by his, uh, his, his lonesome. Um, on a budget of about $130 million, which was just $5 million more than The Philosopher's Stone, but um, and I think it was the third uh, third most cheaply made. Uh, the, the cheapest one was The Chamber of Secrets at only $100 million. Um, though if you split the Deathly Hollows in half that's a whole other issue there but yeah it, of all the movies it made the least amount of money it made less than 800 million a little less but less Of uh, FYI the uh, Deathly Hollows made over a billion uh, part two part one o- uh, almost a billion Half-Blood Prince almost a billion Order of the Phoenix almost a billion and uh, Philosopher's Stone again almost a billion so is why Warner Brothers is never going to let the series die. <laughs> but uh,
3: <laughs> Prison,
1: Prisoner of Azkaban. Um, also, uh, 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what the, what the fan score was. I'd have to look it up really quick. But um, I thought it was one of the lower rated ones. It's actually not. The critics seem to have actually liked that one. The ones they seem to have hated, relatively speaking, were uh, Order of the Phoenix and Deathly Hallows Part 1. So that was fascinating. Um, I think uh, just from talking to people uh, uh, when I when I first shared the opinion of Aska Band, they were like, "Yeah, that's the one everyone hates." I'm like, oh, "Jesus, okay." Uh, I loved it. I thought it was amazing. Um, last thing I want to share: all time worldwide in terms of just the, the giant list of movies that have made money, all time worldwide, the only one that cracks the top ten of the Harry Potter series, of which I just shared, made a fair amount of money. Only the Deathly Hollows Cracks the top ten Number eight A lot of them Aren't even close The closest one After that Is Philosopher's Stone The rest of them Are in the thirties Forties and fifties So It's an interesting thing uh, This Harry Potter series You know When it's You know Put up against the, uh, the money makers That are comic book films And some of the Some of the Disney animated stuff And Jurassic World Because more dinosaurs All right Um so I've got, so now that I've shared all that, let me go ahead and bring on uh, Sean Comer. Sean, how you doing?
2: Hi everybody, Hi, I'm Sean. You're, I'm not, you're not, and, you're
3: not, and I, demand not, I, I
2: demand that I may or may not be <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> And as I mentioned before, we are very happy to bring back. Let me go ahead and say her name correctly, Alexis Haina. <laughs> <laughs> how are you, madam? <laughs>
4: I am doing well. Glad to be back. I want to know that I am not the one that insisted that he enunciate my name like that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that was about that was about fifty percent smartass and fifty percent me being helpful when I texted it, that.
1: God help me! I really thought he he said your name was Alexa. I just was, <laughs> I, I wasn't trying I've to get it. Wrong. <laughs> no, 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 I never said that. She's been I, on
2: the show with us. She's been on show with us before, you dupes.
1: Alright, alright, break it up, you two. I uh I have the memory of Swiss cheese. Um anyway. <laughs> so let's get into this. Um we've got two uh two very interesting movies here moving this series along to talk about uh and two hours to do it before Block Talk Radio decides we've run out of time. So <laughs> Sean, I'm gonna go ahead and turn it over to you. Uh Prisoner of Azkaban, production notes. What you got for me tonight? Well
2: You know, not a whole lot, because as we've been researching this series, I kind of came to the realization, and I maybe should have figured this out probably several years ago, depending on what some of our regular listeners might think, but, you know, some of these movies are almost more fun to talk about the less we get into the uh, -the -the behind-the-scenes productions of them. Uh, So I'm not really going to talk at a whole lot of length about the trivia, really. Uh, The two things that I will note are that this is the one in which Chris Columbus stepped aside and uh, Alfonso Cuarón stepped in as director. And as I thought about the fact that the Harry Potter series went through uh, the one, two, three, four directors in eight movies... It gave me pause to consider just how many, or rather how few franchises we've talked about in the course of this series that have all been helmed by the same person just from start to finish. Even the Star Wars movies weren't all directed by George Lucas, although he has done all four Indiana Jones movies. Um Robert Rodriguez obviously did the entire Mexico trilogy, Brad Bird has done every Toy Story movie today. No, I no, think he collect- Did he not do 3?
4: Uh he didn't do 1 or 2 or 3.
2: Okay, this is another Brad- reason we have you on.
4: You? Brad Bird did The Incredibles and Ratatouille. <laughs>
2: Oh, well, okay, look, even when we were together, yes, you were the animation lexicon, so... Still am. Yeah, yeah, yes, ladies and gentlemen, the former Hermione to my Ron. uh, yeah. uh You know, uh, Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, they were entirely responsible for the Back to the Future trilogy. Uh, man, I can swear that I had one more that I had earmarked spring up. As an example of somebody who was there just from start to finish. Um, oh, the Road Warrior movies. Um, uh, not George Romero. I'll I'll remember it. George Miller, I think it
4: is. I believe that's uh, correct. I
2: could be wrong, but I think so. so. Yeah, I'll, I'll remember it. I'll probably remember it later suddenly and feel like an absolute tool. Um, oh, it'll be your Hal but, Jordan moment. Yeah, quite possibly. Uh, he, yeah, I was. Yeah, I, I I was I was reading Agent Orange this week finally, and I was telling Alexis how hilarious I found it that in the course of his inner monologue, he's at one point trying to remember the name of he called it the Muppet with the curved nose who hung out with chickens, and then something like six pages later, six pages later, he'll all of a sudden just interrupt himself mid battle just to think Gonzo, Gonzo. That was driving me crazy, <laughs> um, but
3: yeah. But generally,
2: what happens is at some point in a lot of franchises, you have a tonal shift. That, in order for the franchise to, and for the story and for its development, you remain engaging. You can't necessarily keep it in the same hand because the person who started it may not be the best equipped to finish it. Uh, this is why, among other reasons, why somebody, why a different director has done every one of the proper Alien movies, not counting Prometheus. Uh, it's one of the reasons why Nightmare on Elm Street, Hellraiser, Halloween... Uh, Terminator, The Fast and the Furious uh, these are just a few of the ones that have had multiple people behind the camera and I'm starting to ramble um, but the first two movies we went through the period of Harry's uh, childlike wonderment at his very first steps into the wizarding world but now in the third one the story is his, his deepest step yet into the shadows, where he's going to get a very
3: concrete,
2: just leave no doubts about an impression as to just what is lurking in the shadows, what's at stake with this wizarding career, and just how dangerous the people are out there who are waiting to, are waiting to do him and the rest the rest of his. Uh, friends and compatriots harm. So to do that, we needed to step up to a um, director. We need to bring in, they decided to bring in Alfonso Cuaron, who at the time of Prisoner of Azkaban, he was coming off the fairly dark, very sexual, kind of grim comedic tones of his breakout uh, Mama E.T.M.A.M.D.S., uh, which is a it's a it's a very racy Spanish language road trip film, is what it is. Um, more recently, some of our audience might recognize recognize him for well, most recently the movie Gravity. Um, but the other interesting thing to look at is. It's just kind of how well the principal child actors are really growing into their roles, both in terms of their acting chops and just their appearance, their stature. Like I said last week, it's one of those things that when you're casting the same children throughout an entire tentpole franchise that you know is going to stretch on for seven to eight years, it's something you simply can't predict. you you simply can't see that coming. But the way it worked out between uh, Chamber of Secrets and Prisoner of Azkaban, uh, in particular, uh, um, Daniel Radcliffe, Rupert Grint, Emma Watson, and Tom Felton all went through these really spectacular growth spurts, And... As it turned out, that played fantastically well uh, into the the shifting, more adult, more mature tone that's going to take over throughout the rest throughout the rest of the series. Uh, they really come across as being very equipped to handle uh, that sort of progression of the characters. So, um, Alexis, do you have anything you want to add?
4: Uh, well, first of all, I think it is important to point out that uh, the director was not the only big replacement. Richard Harris, who uh, sadly passed away oh, after *The yeah, yeah. Secret*, was replaced in the role of Dumbledore by Michael Gambon. Uh, personally, I actually was real—I I wasn't happy about Richard Harris's death in, in any way, shape, or form. But I actually greatly prefer Gambon as Dumbledore. Um, really? M- I mean, yeah, no, I'm like, with you. All.
1: I'm 100. percent
4: I think, and I think a lot of it comes down to, again, Richard Harris was an amazing actor, but he had that very frail voice and the very frail demeanor of Dumbledore. But when Dumbledore is spoken of in in the books and in the film series, he is regarded as the, you don't mess with Dumbledore, he's one of the greatest wizards of all time. But I never got that out of Richard Harris. Uh, Michael Gambon, you get more of this, I have done Crap that you wouldn't believe. You get this real sense of strength from him, and I think that was something that was really missing from the character in the first two books. So, you know, again, Richard Harris was a wonderful actor, but I do like Michael Gambon in the role. I think he was better suited for it.
2: I could, I, uh, I, I'd have, I might have to, I might have to look at my notes and kind of, and kind of think about this for a second, but I could swear that either Christopher Lee or Ian McKellen was considered for was considered for the role. I, I believe they, they were considered were. either for it originally or to replace Richard Harris, weren't they? Uh, they
4: both were, they, I, I checked IMDb. They were both considered for it. Uh, I adore Christopher Lee. I am so glad he didn't take over the role. I don't think I could imagine Dumbledore with that voice. Well,
2: that would I mean, have been a little know, too number, freaky. Number, number one, I feel bad for Christopher Lee because th- because then he went and played also played Count Dooku, in the Star Wars prequels, instead, like um, fucking hell, so you want to talk about about a very wizened, battle-tested wizard who could also make you who could also make you piss yourself on the spot? Oh goddamn, I can imagine nobody carrying that off more effectively than Christopher Lee, because he fucking did it.
4: Yeah, from what I heard, Sir Ian McKellen was actually offered the role, but with his commitments to the X-Men movies and to the Lord of the Rings movies, he just couldn't put it into a schedule. So, can you not
3: imagine it. the him,
1: Can you imagine that conversation between his agent and uh, and um, Ian McKellen going, "Hey, I got another part for you. Oh, you know, what is it? Something from Shakespeare? Is it something classical? What do you got for me? I've been doing all these, you know, these big budget projects. I'm curious to see what, what you got for me, agent." And he goes. It's another old wizard. Off a fuck's sake.
2: Well, although this is the same actor that uh to make a particular point at a gay pride parade once wore once wore a shirt that said, Yeah, that's a that's right, I'm both Magneto and Gandalf. Deal with it.
1: <laughs> I uh I have to say, Alexis, I uh a
2: hundred percent agree with
1: you on the change from the first to the second actor, and that has nothing to do with um, with you know the first actor passing away. Of course, that's sad, but um, I your your sentiment about this being a stronger character, without even knowing how he's portrayed in the books, just on film, it's a night and day contrast for me, and it actually made me enjoy that aspect of the next two films versus the first two. And I'm reminded, and it's funny you mention it, um, and we'll we'll jump into the plot of this thing, but. I, I remember thinking as I watched the actor portray Dumbledore in the first two movies, it reminded me of something my father said about Johnny Cash singing A Bridge Over Troubled Water before, uh, before he passed away. I played the mm-hmm. song for
3: him, my father is a
1: huge Simon and Garfunkel fan. And I said, hey, Johnny Cash, this isn't heavy metal, Dad, first of all. This is Johnny Cash. Uh, I, want, I want to play this cover of Simon and Garfunkel for you. And about midway through, it he asked me if Johnny Cash died in the middle of singing the song. Um, Because he 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 sounded so weak and so frail singing it. Um, At least that was his interpretation. He was just like, I don't think he's gonna make it to the end of this thing, and like walked out of my room. Um, And that's kind of how I felt about that. It was like he he sounds like he was struggling with the dialogue before his voice was giving out. So yeah, I wasn't. I I uh, I much preferred the the stronger uh, stronger. Uh, performance and line delivery of the second actor. All right, let's get into uh, the plot of this thing, and I'm not going to go into the minutia, because I think that'll just come up naturally, but um, Prisoner of uh, Azkaban is essentially um, this is Harry's third year at Hogwarts. Um, Every year starts off for him terribly, and this time, yet another person is trying to kill him, but you know, it it, it isn't a nameless, faceless uh, thing this time. It's his godfather, as he'll find out good old Sirius Black, who he has been told was responsible for setting up his parents for death and has been a prisoner of Azkaban for low these 13 years or so, and now he's a spirit. And he's somewhere in Hogwarts, and he's bent on uh, killing Harry. That's what he's been told. Um, Meanwhile, back in the city, uh, Ron's got a rat problem, that the rat ran away, possibly eaten by a cat. A terrible, terrible thing. And the third thing going on in this movie is that because of the whole serious black issue, who everyone believes to be a crazy psycho murderer, uh, the Dementors are looking for uh, black and protecting the school. And it's an interesting contrast because these, thing these things look like ghastly uh, ghosts, but they're supposed to be there to you know, protect the students and go after the bad guy. Um, it's, it's fascinating to me. Uh, and we, of course, have a new teacher, Mr. Lupine, I believe it was, uh, who is new, who, who yet again with a running gag is the new uh, defense against the dark arts uh, teacher and yet another mentor to Harry. So uh, as I said before, objectively, I feel, and, and subjectively, so if there's room for debate about this, uh, this was the tightest story yet. This thing didn't meander. It gave you all the details. um I, 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 of all these movies, this one I felt was one that moved the fastest. Um, I thought there was they was a great mystery here. Um, I thought all the pieces really lined up nice, and when you finally got to, <clears throat> and when you finally got to that third act, uh, which had a danger of having the Superman problem of time travel with no consequences, which annoys the living shit out of me, um, I actually thought we pulled it off pretty well. Um, you know the, the, the concept of things happening in the first part of that that were caused by the fact that they went back in time to do X, Y, Z. It was fun. Um, I, I it's, it's forgivable. It didn't it didn't sing too much for me as far as time traveling movies go, uh, and I thought it was a cute kind of way to to settle some of the problems they had uh, in that third act. And you know, in terms of obstacles. So I said a lot now about this movie. I sort of laid it all out there. Um, I have no real criticisms of any other part of the craft here. Um, one other thing I will say is the darker tone was a welcomed change from the first two movies. Uh, and Gary Oldman was an absolute sensation, the, the star of this movie, <laughs> in what little screen time he had. So I'm going to go over to you, Alexis. Um, I'm really going to open the door for any comment, question, criticism of anything that I've said or your thoughts on the film. Kind of lets you uh, kick the ball any direction you want, and we'll just chase after it.
4: All right. Well, it? Watching this movie again, I realized that there is a real theme to uh, everything that happens in the book. Realizing the consequences of one's actions. I thought that that was a reoccurring idea. Starting with the very first scene, uh, we start. Uh, with Harry, with his uh, family, the Dursleys, uh, his aunt and uncle. And we are also introduced to another character, uh, his uncle's sister, Marge, who is loud, boisterous, and a complete jerk to Harry. And Harry just totally loses it on his master, which she continues to insult him and his parents to the point that he inadvertently basically turns into a giant balloon. He inflates her, blows her up, and she starts flying away. Right afterwards, Harry grabs his trunk, and he just basically says, screw you guys, I'm out of here. <laughs> Without realizing he has nowhere to go at that point. He has, he has, you know, done this magic outside of school. So for all he knows, he's probably been kicked out of Hogwarts. And I love how this scene, after he is just so furious, he leaves. And then we get this great scene of him. And just on the street, it's pitch black, and it kind of dawns on him, he doesn't know where to go. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't think he can use any more magic. And, again, I really think that sets up the idea of this many themes of the movie, you know, again, taking the consequences of your actions.
1: The whole sequence is brilliant, and I'm glad you, you brought that up. Um, that does uh, remind me of one of the things I wanted to say. I had been waiting for Harry to finally really stand up to the bullies that are his relatives and do something that, on one level, is not a great thing. It's certainly not a good thing to abuse your power and rage. Um, on the other hand, as a character, and uh, you know, you want to see you want to see him develop um, in all the good and bad ways that humans do strange and wonderful things. And so, so, to see him sort of lose his composure and do something conceivably terrible, and then have that moment of regret and fear of I have no idea what my next step is going to be, was wonderful. It was an absolute sensation.
4: There is a little bit more also, and forgive me. In the book that I do like, uh, at the beginning of the movie, Harry goes to Vernon and says, Uncle Vernon, would you mind signing this for me, school stuff? And Vernon just kind of acts in mind and goes, Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about it after this is over uh that is the permission slip to go to the village Hogsmeade, which we see later in the movie uh in the book vernon basically says you be nice to my sister you don't do anything stupid this week and maybe i'll sign it so as harry's getting all of this punishment old afternoon tomorrow he keeps going focus on the permission slip focus on the permission slip that'll get you through it and finally, yeah, March goes to the point where he can't even focus on that anymore, and he loses it.
3: Yeah. It I always kinda like, like
4: that idea that he was he was basically saying, I can keep calm, I can get through calm. this, I have something I want, I can keep get through this. Ah, oh, screw it. No, I can't.
1: I think Daniel Radcliffe did a good job of portraying that on his face. Um, mm-hmm. it's it, you know, it, it's absolutely a you know, a, a sign of good script writing that you don't you don't have to explicitly say everything, George Lucas. You can let the actors act and and, and show emotion that portrays an inner monologue. You don't have to say it out loud. Just to throw that out there, um, Sean. That initial sequence. Any thoughts
2: um, on the initial um, sequence? <laughs> um, I think you and Alexis really said it all, and. It's one of the sequences that I would point out if I had to explain to somebody just what just what makes Daniel Radcliffe such a such a great actor, and to to very much the same extent, Emma Watson. I, I always thought throughout the series that uh, Rupert Grintz, who again is tremendously talented in his own right, had a tendency to sometimes be sort of the awkward, rubber faced comic relief. More often, uh, at, at least in these early few movies, but you can you can really see very on in the, in the movie that especially being around guys like um, everybody who's been in the first couple movies like Robbie Coltrane, Maggie Smith, the late Richard Harris, Michael Gambon, um, Emma Thompson, uh, and now Gary Oldman that. Daniel was really learning a craft of subtlety, and it's something that he's only grown into more and more with each major role that he's taken on since then.
1: One of the things I liked about this movie, and I want to get your response to this, Alexis, is this was... um, I feel like this was the least world-building and most focused on a... uh, a confined story, and I understand that it's actually part of a larger story. So confined, not, it might not be the, the best word. But you know, in terms of movies that can stand on their own, if you know nothing else about the series, I feel like the other three suffer from the idea that you don't know what happened in some of the other movies, that you're going to get completely lost and not and not get the sort of the greater sense of the world. Whereas Prisoner of Azkaban. Um, if I had to pick a movie that stood on its own and without knowing anything else about the series, really is a complete movie uh, from start to finish. I think it tells you everything you need to know about everybody involved, um, with little mystery left over. To, you know where to where you have to watch the the the, the first two films. Uh, do you agree or disagree?
4: I kind of do both. Okay. See because. Again, I, f- forgive me, but I'm going to go off of this as an avid fan of the book. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying, you know, like, oh, the book was better. I'm not going to get on my high horse. I promise you guys I wouldn't do that. But Prisoner of Azkaban, the book, you're correct. It was not a massive world building. Uh, the most we get out of the world building is more of an idea of this wizarding prison, Azkaban. And we get a very brief discussion about it in the book from Hagrid, actually. He just kind of talks briefly about the the – minor time he spent it which was in Chamber of Secrets Prisoner of Azkaban's main point actually is it's putting in pieces of the puzzle that is the past before um, the Harry Potter series started we get more of an idea about his fa- Harry's father James uh, you know you mentioned that uh, series like is Harry's godfather he was James's best friend you know, we get uh, Professor Lupin, who has ties to their past as well, and I felt that they really missed out on doing that in the in the movie. There are so many clues. There's, you know, the great scene where Harry finally finds out how James basically saved Severus Snape's life. You know, and and kind of why Snape has this hatred of James for it. Yeah, I felt that, again, not world-building, but I felt that they really missed out on putting in more pieces of the puzzle. And I was really looking forward to that, including, and I'm sorry, this is a plot hole that I cannot forgive for this movie. We get one of the most essential pieces of Harry's arsenal, the Marauder's Map. One of the, and one of the big, big plot points in the movie is finding out who Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Frongz are, the authors of the Marauder's Map. They completely omitted that from the movie, creating a massive plot hole.
1: What's the plot hole? Sorry? What's the plot hole? Because I honestly didn't see I, – I didn't see where the map led to a, 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 a plot hole in the narrative. So I'm, I'm anxious to get what it
2: was. Alexis, okay. I okay. think this would be one of the moments when you can definitely revert to well in the book.
4: Okay. <laughs> There, okay, we have the scene where Harry is out of bed using the Marauder's Map, and he sees Peter Pettigrew's name on there. I would like to add that it's a, a really nice touch that during that scene, when he thinks he's right on top of them and you don't see anything, you can hear what sounds like a rat scurrying by on the floorboards. Really nice touch for the filmmakers on that. However, he wipes the uh, map clean before Snake comes to him. Movie shows up, or I'm sorry, Lupin shows up there. I just spoiled it. <laughs> and basically takes the map from Harry, but then later on he says, I used the map to find this, and Sirius goes, yeah, the map never lies. Sirius is Mooney, or no, sorry, Lupin is Mooney, Sirius is Padfoot, Harry's father, James, was Prongs, Peter Pettigrew was Wormtail. Because the whole time, I remember when I saw this first in the movies, going, wait, they haven't established this. How do they know how the, the map works? How did Lupin know how to reactivate it? How does Sirius know what they're talking about? Again, I thought this was a really crucial part of the story, and I am so mad they didn't just include a line that says, I know how to work it. I helped write it.
1: So let me counter that within, with, with this. Uh, having not read the book, <laughs> I thought the explanation from the twins, who I love in this movie, I think they're hilarious.
3: I thought the explanation oh, from
1: the twins oh, was, was um, good enough, and the rest of it, I just sort of attributed to, I am competent in magic. You know, I, it, the map came across to me as, again, as a novice in the series, as a, um, a, a magical item. Um, I don't know what I'm looking for here. Just, you know, a, uh, I just need to say magical item. This comes as a, one of the many magical items of the universe. And those with, you know, with, with competency in, uh, in the use of magic would have at least heard of the thing or have some knowledge of how to make it work at at least a basic level. You know, <clears throat> and I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about here. You have Snape, who may or may not have known what Harry was, was doing with the parchment. Um, he seems to allude to the, to, to the idea that he knows. But then he also says, Reveal indicating maybe he doesn't know. And by using this spell, it will tell him uh, what kind of nonsense Harry has gotten himself into this time. So to me, without any of the, of the stuff that you brought up um, just uh, just uh, as far as the film goes, I didn't see where there was any question as to what the map did or how anyone was able to use it. They were doing very basic things with it. You know, Snake tries to get it to to show its true power, and it that fails. Um, and then you have Lup, uh, Lupine, who at least has no, previous. No, he, it is implied he has previous knowledge of the map. I don't think you need to know why. Um, he just knows. And the point of it was, if I remember correctly, uh, was he was I think he was trying to protect Harry from getting himself into a situation via the map that he couldn't handle. At least that was the impression I got.
4: Well, more or less, again, in the book, he confiscates the map from Harry, believing so it's serious to be the madman. And he says, Harry, I'm really disappointed in you. You know, have you ever thought that maybe it's some? if this map fell into the hands of serious is black, it could he could use it to come and get you? But, again, there is that scene in The Shrieking Shack where – you know, they say, what are you talking about? I saw Peter Pettigrew's name on the map, and he's dead. And Sirius yelled, the map is never wrong. So how did Sirius were talking about that? How did he know? I, I, at that point, actually, I don't think they'd even mentioned that Remus had used the map to find them.
1: So I do have one question with, with all that, and Sean, maybe you have an answer. Uh, Alexis, certainly uh, you, you might be able to answer this. When when uh Lupine bails him out of getting in trouble with Snape. Uh, vis-a-vis the map, what you, and, he, and it is revealed later on in the movie he actually knows what all went down with Peter Pettigrew and uh, and Sirius Black. He knows Sirius Black is innocent. He knows that Peter Pettigrew was the one that's you know that set them up. Um, why doesn't he bother? Why doesn't he tell Harry at that point? This is this this whole nonsense that Sirius Black is trying to kill you is actually. Big red herring. There's other, there's other forces of what's here. I
4: don't. I'm sorry. Why you saying why didn't, think Luke, why didn't Why didn't I'm sorry. You saying why didn't Lupin say something? Yeah. The reason for that is because up until that last scene, when Lupin looks at the map and sees Peter Pettigrew on it, he really did believe Sirius Black could be the traitor. Um, again, they go more into this book that, for a point, Lupin and Black didn't even really trust each other. They were legitimately worried about what was going on. Then mentions okay. that, yeah, I saw Black was the killer. Then I looked at the map, and I saw Peter Pettigrew, and the map never lies. That's when Lupin puts two and two together and realizes that, no, Black's not the murderer.
1: Okay. Um, and I guess at that point, it wasn't worth telling Harry, because things still needed to happen, and he needed to be kept out of danger. hmm Yeah,
4: okay. at that point, Lupin, at that point earlier, when Lupin confiscated the map, he... He didn't know what was going on. He knew what the map was, but he was concerned that if it fell into the wrong hands, Harry could be killed. So he basically just took it to be a responsible adult.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Sean, let me go ahead and switch tracks here. Uh, and Alexis, always feel free to just you know jump in, um, especially you know if you want to change directions or something. But you know, same thing to you. Um, what uh, what kind of thoughts do you have about the movie or particular scenes, parts of the craft that? You feel are uh, worth talking about at this time.
2: Well, I'll try to be as brief as possible. Uh, when it comes to Prisoner of Azkaban, one of the th- one of the patterns that emerges throughout it is one of mistaken judgment, as you said before, consequence, and then revelation. What you have throughout, especially the first four movies, but really throughout the entire throughout the entire eight in general, is you have each side kind of having pieces that they're putting together little by little that are shattering their previous conceptions in some way or another. It happens to somebody, if not several people in almost every story to the point where by the time everything wraps up, well, we finally gotten a clear picture a uh, picture of what really did happen um, that all led to the rise, fall, and resurgence of Voldemort. But it's, it, it all leads to a mystery that comes together very comes together very nicely, despite as as both you and Alex pointed out, a few plot holes. Uh, however, the thing is. I've never really looked at the plot holes all that closely, and I'll tell you why. It's because, and I want to really take off the hat of sort of being the both the analytical trivia guy and the jokester of the show, because it's to be very earnest and heartfelt, this is something about the Harry Potter series that is elemental to every enduring piece of fantasy, sci-fi, kind of, to be kind of base about it, nerd-oriented speculative fiction of any kind. And that is, you take something that is eminently relatable to people of a wide range of ages, and you apply it to the most engaging, engaging, immersive, intriguing backdrop that you possibly can. Uh, oftentimes to characters and settings and events and realities that draw you in so much more than just setting a story in the present, in the present day and fleshing out characters as ordinary, everyday people. Um, And that's something that Joe Rowling does I, I think quite easily better than any author of her entire generation, just bar none, full stop. And that is there is something in every single story that everybody can gravitate towards that, ki- that, that resonates in the darkest of our own times. Uh, it's why we, as, as geeks, kind of gravitate toward the stuff that we do. It's why, for example, I'm always so harsh when i'm talking about the walking dead tv series because as a show it's it's just empty gory misery porn hmm. and yeah it's it, it's basically meat grinder theater but at the same time anytime i tell somebody that i always qualify that with something positive by pointing out now the Telltale Walking Dead video game series. When I played the first the first season of it, I was in I was thoroughly emotionally invested in um, Lee and Clementine, the two main the two main characters, um, the adult caring after um, an orphan foundling child who's hiding in her treehouse for survival, I was more invested in those two after about 30 minutes of playing through the story than I was in, I think, uh, about 80 to 90% of the characters that I encountered in the first four seasons of the AMC series. And that's the thing about Harry Potter. As we talked last week about how immersive and detailed and fleshed out the universe is. Um, And, but at the same time, what makes it so remarkable is the fact that the characters who exist within it are on so many levels, so relatable to just about, to just about anybody. Um, just about every character in this story goes through something at some point that is analogous to what any reader at at almost any given time has been through. Um, Whether it's been Harry through discovering uh, the truth about Sirius, finding out that he truly isn't alone in the world in terms of having a... Having a legitimate tie to his family, and a guardian, and someone to watch over him. To um, serious being able to clear his name, and re- and reconnect with the boy that he swore to James and Lily that he would protect with his life, and any number of any number of other characters. That, characters in between it's it's something that you can always kind of call back on and return to but it's never hokey you you never feel like you're being beaten over the head or having some or having something saccharine shoved down your throat like it's the last five minutes of a full house episode um, everything is still very tastefully, artfully done it's it, it reads so easily the the actors especially in, in my opinion Daniel Radcliffe and Gary Oldman here translate it all so, so very well and so very touchingly on the screen that that's why it becomes something that you'll never that you'll never forget. Piggyback on an idea
1: that you brought up there, because as you were saying it, it actually reminded me of something
2: uh, completely
1: out of left field, but, but follow me on this little journey for a moment. Um, it kind of reminds me, uh, Azkaban, like like many third parts of a trilogy do, uh, kind of reminds me of the difference between season one and season three of The Wire. Um, and I understand these two things could not be mathematically uh, further apart. But here, here's my here's the rub. So the first season of The Wire, um, you, you know, even as a in a series as grounded as that one was in in reality, there still was a lot of world building because how much do people really really know about uh, long-term detective work and uh, you, know, um, you know and the amount of detail and time sitting around that goes into uh, those kinds of investigations. And certainly not a lot of people uh, in their working class lives know the inner workings of street gangs and drug dealers. So there was a lot going on in that first series. To the point where one of the biggest criticisms of it is it moves a tad slow because there's a lot to, there's a lot of information to get out there in the drama. By season Three, which brings us back to a lot of the same characters established in season one it go it, it it's often running almost immediately and it doesn't relent for the almost the entirety of uh, of the of that season because it's all the players we know and love um uh, and some of which even from season two there were some uh th- there were some threads that were finally tied up uh so season three tends to be a lot of people's favorite because it didn't spend a lot of time world building as such. It played in the, this is what I was getting to. It plays in the world that is already established. The almost the entirety of it is them using the world they've already established. And that I feel like is the biggest strength of Azkaban is they took a break from the world building to a degree and got a chance to really play in this wonderful universe and that I think on a lot of levels might be other than I really enjoy the story um one of the things I like about this movie uh Alexis you'd like to respond to that great if not uh, I actually want to uh, just want to give you an opportunity here to have maybe a final word some more thoughts uh anything left unsaid
4: Well, even though, like I said, I wasn't happy with some of the crucial plot holes in the, not the world building, but the past building, for lack of better terms, I did really enjoy Azkaban. I thought that. Uh, the director really took it in different ways that Chris Columbus had not even thought about. I love that we got different kinds of pacing. You know, the the scene with the night bus to this day is one of my absolute favorite scenes. With Harry <laughs> flying all over the place inside this bus, and the conductor's just like, yeah, yeah, another Tuesday, whatever. You know, um, I love that we got an awesome return to Quidditch, and we had Quidditch in the rain. We had the broom being struck by lightning, you know, that they mentioned, mm-hmm. again, they mentioned in the book, Quidge is dangerous. People have ended up in the hospital over this game. And it's great to see, yeah, uh, people can legitimately get really freaking hurt, even though this is a school sporting match. <laughs> uh, there were little touches that I really enjoyed that were obviously placed there by the uh, director, Alfonso, who is of Mexican descent. Uh, in uh, in Honey Dukes, the sweet shop in Hogsmeade, you see rows upon rows of sugar skulls all painted very beautifully, and I just thought that was a very nice touch. I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. You you wouldn't have seen that with Chris Columbus. you know. I really did enjoy that there was a big change in the direction. They really took some more liberties with things I don't think they would have done in the past. Even the inclusion of the shrunken heads, the talking shrunken heads, I thought was kind (laughs) of funny. And I did love, and again, the new cast, and Gary Oldman, I could not have imagined a better choice of Sirius we got David. Oh God, how do you pronounce his last name? Swellis is Lupin, who I'm gonna admit, when I first read the book, the person I pictured playing Lupin, Ewan McGregor. I, I for some reason I'm like this just sounds like something that's would come out of Obi, with Obi Wan's voice. <laughs> uh, we also got Emma Thompson as Professor Trelawney, who. I just adored her in this. You could tell she is just climbing up the walls with her acting. She's just going all over the place. and I, and I really did like her in the role.:
1: so. I think I had to go ahead and I had to pick a favorite thing about this movie that isn't just the story plot. It would be the fact that it's Harry in this movie. He saves himself quite literally, literally saves himself. Um and you know as somebody who truly appreciates the warrior hero movie, I liked that uh, he was coming to his own rescue. With, you know, with the aid of but I mean he's the one that that finally sends the Dementors away. So I give him the credit. Um, and unlike the previous three movies, no one's, coming, no one's coming to his rescue. It's the strongest the character has looked, I think, in movie, uh, which is as good as any a transition. Do ye goblet of fire, but it would not be fair if I did not say Sean, any last words?
2: Um what about prisoner of Ascabon? Yeah. Or about Oh. Prisoner. Um not, not really. I think we pretty much summed it up. It's where Harry's it's where everybody's every student's coming of age uh shifts into an entirely new year. And overall, and Mark, you're you're gonna disagree with me about this, but it comes in, I think, tied for second among my favorite movies in the series, along with *Goblet of Fire*. <laughs> <All
3: right>. Well <laughs> for the portion of the uh, show
1: okay. where, where, welcome to the portion of the show where the guests and the co-hosts will now beat the shit out of me because I hate *Goblet of Fire*. I'm kidding.
4: Actually, I was just going to point out, I forgot to mention, uh, since we were talking about Harry saving himself, gentlemen, the Patronus quiz on Pottermore, did you do it? I did. I did. Mark, uh, did you? I,
1: uh, I have not yet because it takes, cause you have to set up an account, and I ain't got time for that shit. So, um, But I'm going to because, <laughs> because one of my friends, his wife is apparently a huge Harry Potter fan and insisted that if I was going to do this podcast series on the uh, on the movies, that I had to figure out which house I'm supposed to be in. And I can't do that unless I do the account and everything. So I promise you by the end of this series, which will be the first week of December, I will find out if indeed I belong in Gryffindor or Hufflepuff. I can't imagine yeah. on any day I'm going to get a Slytherin. You yeah, think surprised,
3: Capric- actually... My
4: Hey, 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 hey. No using of that language. <laughs> for the record, the Pottermore quiz is exceptional. It's well done. Uh, yep. You know, tops off to whoever did the programming for that website because it is a work of art.
1: All right. Uh, let's move on here to Ye Olde Goblet of Fire. So here we have a movie uh, where we are back to world building. And, boy, you know, if you thought the first one – was you know was just dense with uh you know setting up the uh, rivets and, and steel of this world. You ain't seen nothing yet. They they built an entire if the movie is a building, and then over the course of the next two movies they added you know the the uh, the windows and the air conditioning and whatnot. This one they built the goddamn city. Holy crap. Um, in a, in a way that was deeply ineffective for me. They they built this entire world. They focus on that, which is the tournament of which the Goblet of Fire picks the contestants. So I'll get through a very very brief synopsis. Uh, fourth year, um, this time um, no one. is well, He's not told right at the beginning. of The movie, someone's trying to kill him. We we we're finally breaking that pattern. So someone is, and you'll find that out later. Um, we have, uh, two other schools that are coming to Hogwarts to compete, uh, in the, in this, in this, uh, contest. Um, Harry, younger than 17, need not apply, yet Harry's name is, uh, thrown into the Goblet of fire, and he, of course, is selected because movie. And, uh, so he, along with one other Hogwarts student and the other, and the other two students from the other two schools in this tournament, which takes the entire course of this movie. Um, turns out the whole thing was a setup so that he could be drawn into a alley of sorts, a dead end, uh, and be confronted with the newly brought back Lord Voldemort. So if you have been waiting for this villain, the Darth Vader of this series, to finally show up and do some shit... Well, this is the movie for you, because here's where he does it. And it's, for me, the best part of this whole movie. Um, Voldemort is brought back from the deadish ish -ish. Um, He uh, he tries to kill Harry. Harry does his level best to defend himself and shows true grit. But, of course, it's not exactly at the level of Voldemort. And so he is saved by the ghost of, uh, what's-his-face, the the vampire from fucking... (laughs) Uh, Twilight, good old Robert Patton. <laughs> um, he's saved by the he's saved by the vampire. It was fantastic. Uh, and and his parents who <laughs> um who opened the portal. He jumps back through with the body of uh, of of Robert Pattinson, and and uh it is it, it is said to the world he has returned. Lord Voldemort has returned, and we see the beginning of uh Voldemort and his army as they march to the end of this series. Um, there's a lot more going on and involved here. We have a character who, who, one again, seemingly is there to protect Harry and turns out is actually, and I actually have a question about this is the son of one of the evil wizard catchers who is a follower of Voldemort who has taken on the identity of another, you know, famous wizard catcher, evil wizard catcher. Um, and this whole thing is again a setup to to, to have Voldemort kill Harry. Um, I will say this, and then I will turn turn things over to you, folks. This thing, and I understand it's called the Goblet of Fire, so what else were they we supposed to focus on, right? Um, I found, like I said, I found the the more world. I didn't find the world building interesting in this movie. Number one, and number two. Uh, I felt a lot of the narrative was meandering and going into places I had no interest, personal interest in. Um, I had zero interest in this tournament or the characters involved with it. Um, And a lot, and and there are ways I can see that, you know, that this adds to Harry's character and character building, but not enough to keep my interest. And as I said, it isn't until we have that final confrontation with Voldemort that I became interested in the movie. Um, so I want to I make sure I, I'm setting this up sort of a binary way. I'm admitting it's a movie of the day, which forms the, the, the previous two-thirds of the movie for me. Um, I just personally didn't enjoy those first two movies. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and start with Alexis again. Um, as always, respond or add
4: all right uh it is massive world building i thought it was an interesting touch in the movie uh that the we see we're introduced to two more uh schools of magic Bobatins, uh which is clearly french and Durmstrang, which the, I, I never really say where it's from but considering that one of their students flies for the bulgarian quidditch team we're going to go on a limb and assume that the school's in bulgaria or at least somewhere along that line uh, I thought it was an interesting touch, though, that mm-hmm. they made oh, Bobadins an all-French school and Durmstrang an all-boys school. I like, okay, I, I guess I could work with that. Um, trying to think of where it is. The thing that I actually really enjoyed about Gobble of Fire, I think that this, you know, Sean, I've actually talked about this in the past. What they got absolutely right in this film was it was the best film, in my opinion, that captured what it's like to be a teenager. You know,
3: well. there are so many...
0: Uh,
4: there's so many scenes where it's like, yeah, that is the first time that I've seen these characters act like teenagers, act like high school students. You know, <laughs> not just wizards. These are still, you know, 14-year-olds, and they're going to act like 14-year-olds. Harry gets his first crush. We have the great scene with the dance. Uh, I just thought it was a lot more enjoyable because that. I thought these characters were a little bit more relatable.
0: So I want to...
1: Hang on, real quick. Um, and, then, and then the floor is yours. So there's a movie that came out ways back called, um, oh gosh, something or other, the, the worst, uh, seventh grade, the worst years of my life or something like that. The kid who sketches in the book and the sketches come to life and the principal's a jackass and throws the book away until the kids revolt. Um, you know which movie I'm talking about? Not off the top of my head. Sean,
4: does I ring a bell to you?
2: You could have just made random fart noises with your mouth for the last few seconds and it would have made more sense to me. <laughs> Middle school. Worst years of my life. Um,
1: and, it, and, and look, at it, in its essence, it's a lot of what you just talked about. I'm like, this is, this is kids being kids. Wonderful and terrible ways that they can be in the you know, fine tween years of their life. And my wife wanted to see it and take the kids. And I said, I would rather be thrown off a fucking building. <laughs> and, Blunt <laughs> um, and, and and I think that, that that's a lot of where This is coming from It's just a personal I, I don't enjoy those kinds of movies And that's what this was You are absolutely correct um, Go ahead Sean
2: Hey Mark You know pretty much every objection You've raised so far About this movie Yeah 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 uh, you shut your whore mouth and just appreciate the fact that Harry Potter and the Tenth Doctor just tried to save the world from Edward Cullen. Okay, Sparkle Pants. Anyway,
4: <laughs> and hi.
2: And let's face it, we were all waiting for that joke
3: <laughs>
2: because that's what it was. I'm sorry, head cannon accepted. Your arguments are invalid.
4: For the record, I did like Robert Pattinson in this role. Uh, first of all, I think he's a lot better I, looking. He died. Well, first of all, I think he's a lot better looking when he's not pale as hell and not sinewy. I thought he was much more attractive. And I also enjoyed the character Cedric Diggory. Uh, again, they go more to him in the books. But the fact is that we all knew someone like this in high school or even in college. Someone who was good looking, popular, top of their class, athletic, kind, just like one of those overall perfect. Human beings, but we all knew someone like that growing up. I still remember the name of the guy I went to high school who was like that. <laughs> so, no, I'm serious. I remember. I remember the name of of my of my own personal high school, Cedric Diggory.
1: <laughs> Robert Pattinson and also in the sunlight. Yeah,
4: yeah. And in this movie, he did. <laughs>
2: <laughs> all right. So, anyway, um, arguments set aside. <laughs> Go well, ahead. Anyway, what I, uh, to get into the actual movie itself? Though, uh, no, you know what? The movie was exactly the detour that it needed to be because it was exactly the detour that the book was. After an extremely heavy, fairly dark, very tense third volume, the fourth book. Both the movie adaptation of it and the book itself is an absolute imaginative, visual, action-packed treat. It is absolute spectacle just about from start to finish. Is there a whole lot of really deep character development? No, not really. But I would also go so far as to say that it's the most goddamn fun to read. Um... There is character the,
4: development, just not for Harry.
2: Well, yeah, exactly. And in, terms, like doing and, that in, and in terms of the actual movie itself, yeah, granted, there were some visuals that they really didn't get to realize, I imagine probably for pacing and runtime reasons. But what they were able to weave in there was... Absolutely, absolutely. From from the ball to the underwater sequences, right up to the, the to the very end, to the to the climax, to the the denouement of everything, was absolutely as well. Pardon the pun, but as as, as magical and larger than life as. You as you would have dreamed it was when you were reading what, at the time, was the lengthiest book yet of the series. And quite frankly, it was refreshing after the previous movie where Harry is forced to sort of take a gigantic leap forward in his maturity that he, well, for all we know, may or may not have been ready to take. To see him sort of be flustered by having to transition to these traditional travails of puberty. You know, everything from feelings about girls to that moment when somebody in your circle, whether it's you or somebody else, where fate or circumstance or what have you, just sets that person apart in a class by themselves. And at that time when it's the kind of situation, the kind, the kind of feeling or moment when they would be used to turning to their lifelong friends, uh, they really can't because they've been alienated and set and set on an island, and forced to turn to their own wits and test their own metal, and sink or swim on their own merits. That's what you have with, in terms of the fact that you have that brief rift that develops between Harry and Ron, and to a certain extent also between Harry, Ron, Harry, Ron, and Hermione. And all of a sudden Harry's facing the test of his life um, a, a test that he never that he never asked for and he has seemingly absolutely no choice but to do but to do it on his own and then at the end in what I think is a really nice prelude to everything that he's going to be um, so jarringly confronted with in Order of Phoenix uh, Harry has to Harry has to cope with death firsthand and before his very eyes in a way that he's never had to before because I think in the first couple books it was easier because it was vanquishing the bad guy it was it was retribution against evil it was standing up for good but here you know maybe not a friend but a classmate somebody he was acquainted with somebody somebody who's very close who's very close to him in age who might as well have been harry is just he's dead. And for all the magic and and all and all the mysticism that Harry has to grapple to understand and for all and for all of his prodigal magical abilities, Cedric's death is just something that no spell, no enchantment, no unseen inscrutable force can undo. He's just very simply dead. He, he's gone. As the saying might go, at not only everything he was, but everything that he would have been is extinguished before his eyes. And Harry is forced to do something that no that no boy, muggle or wizard alike, should ever have to do. And that is Bear his body back to Hogwarts and have to stand face-to-face with his parents. That, that's something that is it's downright sobering, especially when you consider just everything I describe and the fact that we're talking about a young adult book. Something that has been dismissed and derided so many times by holy by holier than now uh high standard bearing adults as being as being oh it's it's for children it, 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 it's for kids for kids tweeds at most adults don't read this nonsense well. Everything I described is about as adult as you can get, and that's the shift that we get from the typical pubescent teenage drama that we deal with throughout about three-fourths to four-fifths of the book. It's all of a sudden from that to someone's, someone Harry's age in this, in this magical world is dead and gone and Harry is left with not just survivor's guilt but pangs of this is somehow my fault guilt so that's a lot to have to face down and the the, the really amazing thing is from here the 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 almost 180 degree turn in tone and also, the stakes just get ratchet, just get ratcheted further and higher, pretty much with, with every movie that goes on that goes onward to the point where by the time we got to Destiny Hallows part two, it, it it almost left me gobsmacked to go back and watch Sorcerer's Stone all over again and realize just how far it had come and where it had meandered along the way. Um, something like The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. I mean, totally, they're they're very smooth and stay the course effectively the the entire way through. But that's something that Harry Potter does that I would I don't want to call it an advantage because obviously they're not the same stories, but it's something. That sets the eight Harry Potter movies and well, and the books for that matter, just entirely apart in, in how they're enjoyed and how they're appreciated.
1: Oh, um, a lot of really, good point, I'm, I'm credit for uh, one is one of the stronger points of the movie. And again, I mean, i be running out. Um on an objective level. Important. The strongest parts of this movie are one on one relationships and how they evolve. Uh, I so taken individually, I enjoyed the fact who in a movie is established that, you know, he sees in there himself holding a cup and you know, he's he sees himself as as wanting to be acknowledged as great and he comes from this wizard family. There's all the works for the ministry and all of this. There's a reason why he shouldn't be. And yet, here he has a friend who, every time he turns around, <laughs> something wonderful and horrible is happening to him. When you think somebody has something that you want, and that was in the idea of, uh, by the goblins. Ron just grow shit about it, With both for both characters and the little little bit of fighting that they do. I <laughs> think my favorite part of it actually belongs to Hermione. Now, tell I can tell Harry that um, <clears throat> individually. I also liked the uh, you know the broken hearts and you know the the, the idea of. Don't ask me on a, on a to the dance last resort. Um, you
3: know,
1: and, uh, this girl who is what swooning over this one boy and having something like that. Well done, actors! Really raising the bar and rising to the occasion. Um, I think just just, just round back. I think taken together um, it got, it just got to me after a while. I, I just want to see something else in this movie because that's what a lot of this was. Um, so moving, uh, moving past that. Cause again, I do think the relationships are, are the strongest part of this. Um, do we want to talk about the shift in tone? The, the shift in uh, the narrative that is the entire third act Alexis, is that something you want to get to, or was this something else you wanted to talk about?
4: Um, for the record, if I repeat anything you just said, I apologize. I don't know if it's my phone or not, but uh Mark, you're kind of coming in a little staticky so I'm having trouble hearing that my, part of what you're saying. Yeah, telling.
2: mine, mine too. I, I only for a while there, I only caught about, I think, every third or fourth word. Yeah. Okay. I'll try to, okay good. I'll try to speak
1: up a little bit. um if it, so if it's blog talk, I, I don't know But it, it might be me, I'm talking a little lower Because of my sore throat, throat. Um, I, uh, But no,
4: I I, uh, I do agree That ahead. the third act is where things really do Take off, I remember again Reading the book, when Cedric Diggory is killed, well actually not even Just then, um, you know They're in the maze during the third act Or the third uh, task of the there. They're both saying, you know, you grab it No, you grab it, and finally take it together but when it's revealed that it's a poor key, you, as a reader, are just going, oh, my God, what the hell just happened?
3: Yeah. You know, yep. They
4: they do not hint that this is going to happen. So it is a sudden shift. And you're right along there with Harry and Seth, you're going, what just happened? What's going on? <laughs> oh, crap. And you you feel that same sense of worry. You freak out a little bit. You're going, oh, this is so not going to be good. So. Um, it's a fleet moment,
1: giant moment of tension, and it's great.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, again, that was a moment of tension in the book, and they captured it perfectly in the movie. Uh, let's see here. I do want to talk a little bit about some of the casting uh, in the movie. Uh, we got uh, Brendan Gleeson as Mad-Eye Moody, who I really enjoyed. Again, it does take a little bit away when you realize later on that that wasn't the real Mad eye, Moody. That was someone impersonating him, but he was still a very fun character. He kind of he really comes across as like this slightly crazed war veteran who who has not totally regained everything he left in the war. Uh, The scene where he transforms Draco into a ferret, which is one of my favorite scenes in the book, (laughs) is just hilarious. You know, McGonagall's like, "What are you doing?" He just blows and goes teaching. (laughs) <laughs> he's not a student technically it's a ferret I just I <laughs> love that
2: scene I you, thought you that know was what? hilarious now, now that you've made the war veteran analogy I all of a sudden want to exercise a little bit of YouTube foo and cut together uh, Moody's best scenes from the movie um, uh, beneath uh, uh, Rooster by Alice in Chains <laughs> <laughs>
4: So yeah, we have that. Um, let's see here. Of course, we gotta talk about Ray Fiennes as Voldemort. Uh, there were so many different actors who were considered for this role. Ray Fiennes, I could not ima- Now that I've seen him in the role, I cannot imagine anyone else doing the part so perfectly. When he talks to his uh, Death Eaters, his disciples, if you will, he has this voice that it's not. Totally threatening. I will kill you. And it, it's it, there's a charm to it, you know. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see where you're. Like, oh, Harry! I almost forgot you were there. You know, it's, it just comes across as again charming. It, it kind of does.
2: This, this has been the second review in a row where we've had to say that Ray Fiennes pretty much stole Goddamn here an entire movie. <laughs> we, yeah, because we we you. Alexis, you weren't uh, you were here when we were talking about Red Dragon last week. Um, no, La- Wait, uh, last yeah. week? Yeah, was... or no, uh, two weeks ago. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, you weren't you weren't here when we were talking about that. And well, I mean, you, you remember? I think I think you watched uh, Red Dragon with me when we were together. Um, yeah. Um. Well, well, yeah. Ray Fiennes was Francis Dollarhide, Tooth Fairy.
3: mm mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So. You on that, um, <laughs> the the tooth fairy, that the great red dragon was also Lord Voldemort
4: I also want makes a kind of to, sense to, say, I also want to give props to the visual department for how they stylized very fine, the removal of his nose. Uh, which I thought looked really impressive. That they really describe Voldemort as having this almost flat face with red eyes in the book. Mm-hmm. I hate to say, the first time I read it, I imagined like a very pissed off looking Jack Skellington from Nightmare Before
2: Christmas. So did I. Yeah.
4: Oh, good. Yeah, good. Our minds were so. And when I saw I was like, oh my God, that. Yeah, that is exactly how they describe it in the book. Now I do I do think they removed the red eyes cuz they wanted his eyes to be more uh, expressive which was a smart move. But again that was yeah. just that was perfect looking. But again going back to the whole charming thing, I think it's also a good representation of Voldemort's character. We find out that when he was a student, Tom Riddle, Voldemort's real name, was he was inc- he was a great student and insanely charming. He was he was Good looking, he was a favorite amongst a lot of the teachers. And when he speaks, you kind of get the hint of that. You get the idea that this is a guy who knows how to get people to do what he wants, not out of fear, I said, but he knows how to work his way through it. And I really like that.
1: Question, <clears throat> excuse me. Question for you, Alexis.
4: Sure. Something I,
1: thought, something I thought about as I was watching the movie, and. Um, when they, uh, when they first do the whole goblet uh, of fire choosing the participants, and um, there's a discussion after which where, you know, Harry is chosen, and if, you know, and Body crouch says, well, the goblet says Harry participates. We well, have to participate. Nothing I can do about it. And then the later reveal is that his son is actually masquerading as Moody, uh, and this has all been an elaborate setup to bring back Voldemort and have him kill Harry. I got to thinking, okay, did Barney... Crouch know that this was happening, and that was his participation in the plot, or was he sort of just an unwilling accomplice, or rather an unknowing accomplice? I
4: like Wait, are we talking Barty Crouch Junior. or Senior? Senior. Senior. No. Um, may I? May I say in the books? May I?
2: Well, <laughs>
4: okay. <laughs> I, I again I don't want to come across as the hipster. It's better the book. So it's like I, I want to make sure I'm not coming across like that, okay? No, I don't we we, do that. we
2: we we talked about this. It's it's one thing to be it's one thing to be dickbag and bring that up <laughs> and bring that up just because just to sound like you know, an an elitist twat waffle. But it's another when you're actually pointing out how Leaving something out of the book changes the way it comes across with
0: the movie. Okay. Okay. Left this before.
2: You,
1: here's why you're off the hook. My my biggest reason why you're off the hook, and you can talk about the books as much as you want, because in the hey. previous podcast series where we talked about Hannibal, if Robert Winfrey had said it was better in the TV series once, he said it a million times. So, he was right. <laughs> I'm not saying he was wrong, but if, we're, but if one person is going to do that, i got to open up the door to anybody else who does it appropriately. So by all means, Matt, the floor is yours.
4: All right. In the books, Barty Crouch Sr. is okay, – In the movies, Sr. discovers that Matt Eye Moody is, in fact, his son in disguise. He finds out because Matt Eye Moody starts doing a weird little tongue flick thing to the side, which apparently was a quirk of Junior's. And that's when Barty Crouch Jr. is killed. In the books, however, he is well aware that his son is alive and out of Azkaban. There's actually, uh, the, you know, I'm actually kind of glad they did cut this part because Lord knows there was a lot of exposition. Uh, where Barty Crouch Jr. admits that when his mother died, Barty Crouch's when Sr.'s wife died, she requested as a last favor to her that their son be freed. They went to Azkaban and using Polyjuice Potion, the same thing that Junior used to disguise himself as Moody, allowed them to switch places in the prison. Now, apparently Junior was being kept under pretty strong security by his father to make sure he didn't do anything stupid, but unfortunately he broke free. Basically used his father as a puppet using the Imperius Curse, which as we learn in this movie, allows you to have complete control over your subject. And it was at the end when Crouch Sr. started to break through that curse that he was finally killed. Crouch Sr. was partially responsible for this because he freed his son as a last request to his dying wife.
1: But he was not necessarily involved in the minutia of the plot against Harry, um, in insisting he participate in the. Tournament. No, well, no, he, no, he was.
4: No, Croft Senior was not involved in this plot by Voldemort. You know now, but again, what had happened could not have happened had he not freed Junior from Azteban. So he is indirectly responsible for, it, but he had no part of the actual plan itself. That was all. Voldemort, Wormtail, and Junior's design,
1: uh, idea. And then then that entire sequence of him insisting that Harry participate in this thing, and I'm sure there's some background to it in the book that explains it better, but in the film, it comes across, at least to me, as ludicrous, that the that, that explanation that he gives to me is ludicrous. In other words, they don't know who put Harry's name in there. Harry's denying he did it.
3: It's
1: unbelievable. And so... If you, one thing, if they were arguing against, say Cedric, and saying no, 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 uh, Cedric who was a willing participant shouldn't have to participate because of X, Y, Z. Well, no, that does it doesn't work that way. The goblet chooses who the goblet wants in the story. Okay, I would have bought it then. Mm-hmm. But in a situation where they had already said Harry couldn't participate, nobody can under the age of seventeen. His explanation to me didn't make any sense. You know. I, <laughs> I'm sorry I I,
4: I I No, no, go ahead. Unfortunately, that is something that you kind of have to go on a limb to believe. Uh in in the book after Harry's name comes out, um uh, Madame Maxine and uh oh god, what's the leader, what's the headmaster from Durgin Kakarov, I believe it was, are both yeah, they're both launching fits, going, okay, no, if Hogwarts has got two champions, we want two champions, blah, blah, blah. And hmm. Crouch Sr. basically says, one, we can't do that. The goblet's already gone out. You know, we can't reactivate it. It's an, you know, The goblet is a very ancient, magical item. They, they cannot control it like that. But, yeah, it does follow very similar to the movie. Crouch basically says the rules are finite. If his name came out of the Goblet of Fire he has to participate and again it's a when you look back and you put it like that it does seem a little weird it's like well wait why don't they just say no no and go against what the goblet of fire says but that is the way it's done in the book your name comes out of the goblet of fire it's a magical law it's a magical contract you gotta stick with it
1: yeah it felt a little weak to me it felt it felt a little because the plot says so but not enough where i was like all right i I don't buy this element of the movie. It was kind of a it was kind of an eye roll moment for me, and we were moving on to bigger and better things. Um, Sean, anything left unsaid here? Anything you want to talk about as far as the goblet goes? I we, uh, we sort of the the last third of the movie, the spy act. Um, yeah, I was playing so good uh, the performances and everything that you guys have already talked about. So I don't want to I don't want to double back on it but I do want to give you an opportunity here to share some uh, some final thoughts or let uh, things left unsaid.
2: Well, you know what? As I've been sitting here, I think that I've kind of learned a little bit to appreciate sort of why I gravitated to this series so easily. And as with so many things we have discussed before, it's, it's a little bit personal. And that's the fact that I've called myself before a little bit, of a late in life geek, uh, I really discovered uh, kind of my identity in terms of a lot of the things that I that I like uh, a lot later than a lot of people did. You know, I I'll, you talk to a lot of people and they say that they they grew up loving uh, sci-fi and fantasy and video games and comics. Um, uh, d uh d and d art and all thats and all that stuff from the time they were kids and you know we we talked a little bit ago about how uh there's some themes in terms in terms of characters feeling the need to either break away from or stand out from or establish themselves apart from their families. In in, ver- in various ways, uh, everybody sort of has their own relationship with the, with their parents and their family histories that it defines them in a number of ways. From Draco feeling like a fiercely proud servant um, of of his family's legacy to Ron really feeling a bit dis a bit disjointed from it from his sometimes or at least a bit confused about how he can aspire to something greater when the Weasley family isn't exactly the most remarkable name in the entire wizarding world uh the fact that Harry has such a limited connection to his own uh, the fact that. Hermione is half wizard and half Muggle, and then of course, obviously, there's the the whole tragic saga of Barty Crouch Jr. And as you said, everybody is trying to find their own path to be something great on their own, and I think that's why I identify so much with the entire series. Is and I really hope Alexis will mind if I kind of invoke something a little bit a little bit uh historic for she and i here is the fact that when she and i met uh i was it was the summer before my senior year of high school and i was one of those kids that i was i like to say that i'm i'm the nerd son of two jocks um, they both really excel really excelled in school Uh Mom was quite the basketball player. Dad was a three-sport athlete, football, wrestling, and track. And in a way, I guess, the the, the fondness and fascination that I always kind of had underneath the surface for my nerdier fandoms is kind of like uh, Harry's procliver- proclivity for wizardry. And it's something that wasn't really connected to the people that I grew up around. Uh, I really didn't have a a family tie to that to fall back on in terms of strengthening those things. And so I spent a lot of time just kind kind of the average kid. I didn't really fit in exactly with just about anybody. But then I met Alexis, and from there came... Uh, a a greater fascination with music and animation and old movies and that grew over time and it blossomed into my renewed love for gaming Um, at a certain point uh, my best friend Scarlett deepened a lot of that even further and really helped me to kind of know myself better and to cement that idea that there's a whole world beyond what was ingrained in me from the time I I was old enough to form a thought and onward through the period when parents and teachers and, and peers and everybody around you is trying to kind of shape you that way. And that's it kind of expanded a little bit more and a little bit, and a little bit more, sometimes to the point of creating, con- creating conflict. As I made a few missteps, and it's really no different from the way that so many characters, in particularly in this story, um, stumble, struggle, fall on their faces so many times. And for a lot of them, they're really having to go about this on their own because they don't want to be strictly identified with the first thing that anybody's name communicates about them to anybody that's immediately acquainted with them and that's uh your last your last name. Okay? What what were your parents like? What were your uncles like? Your your grandparents. Uh where do they lean politically? What's their religious alignment? And then all of a sudden, here comes someone like me or Alexis or anybody else who just naturally wasn't born to to kind of follow that follow that same straight line, and you just sort of feel that feel that cold darkness until you are able to just kind of stop for a moment, just kind of plant your ankles in, in the ground, bend your knees, and just kind of hold fast until you sort of get familiar with everything and you kind of start to feel your own legs out. That's, that's something about this series that I think just about everybody I know uh, who, really, who really loves it can probably attest to and it's why it means so much and it's why fandoms like this do mean so much to all of us growing up is because in a way they are our religion in that these, these are our parables. These are our myths. These are our heroes. These are our, in a way, our kind of easily recalled guides and lessons for living and identity and a sense of a moral of a moral compass, and I think Harry Potter does that especially well because it's not entirely idealistic. It it, it really isn't. This isn't a Silver Age comic book. Um, at the end at the end of the story, it, it doesn't end with uh Hal Jordan or Clark Kent or Bruce Wayne or Peter Parker cracking wise in the last panel and then flashing then flashing a bunch of a bunch of chicklets at us as you know we come as we come to come to the ever loving end. No. Uh, especially in especially in the next book and the next movie Terry, for a little bit becomes just a little bit of a prat. Uh He's kind of he's kind of responsible for alienating himself from a lot of the people around him. Um, not only because he starts to develop a little bit of an attitude and an inflated sense of his confidence, but underneath it all, like I said, it's it's that guilt. It's it's sometimes that sense of why did I live and said and Cedric died along with occasionally doubting himself and wondering, am I the reason that Cedric is dead in the first place? And those are the stories that I think I can appreciate easiest because they teach without telling us that everything is ever simple, black and white, and everything is winner take winner take all the good guys come away without come away without a scrape and always wear white hats. So anyway, red's over. I think you said something well, very point. I think you said something very point sure.
1: And I was thinking that you were talking um, this point, my, In this series, and, and Alexis, you tell me if I'm, I'm right or wrong about this. This is by far the most coming of age story in the series. Um, I think that was a, that was a big driver of the narrative. This, as you, as was said earlier, this was about kids and uh, you know moving, uh, aging, maturing, and taking on all the you know the good and bad that goes with that. And I think for, um, for a lot of people, you know, you were talking about yourself, I assume Alexis as well, um, there's a lot of ways to identify with those characters because of that. It takes, if you're, you know, if you're much older, it takes you back to those years. If you're of those years, you have these, you have these present um, modern characters to identify with. Um, I just think personally I'm at a point where I don't want to really, I don't want to think about those years in my life anymore. Um, I haven't for many years now. And so I tend not to watch those kinds of coming-of-age uh, movies because I, I, I don't... I, if I thought about it long enough and I remembered, I would relate. But I just simply don't want to. So I ignore it. It's why you know, people get very nostalgic about the Goonies and a lot of the movies of the 80s that were of the same sort of coming-of-age ilk. And... I run away from it all now and have for, for quite some time. I I just don't have that interest anymore. There are, uh, there are heroes and there are characters that I do identify with that do speak to me personally. And it's in, in a different, uh, in a a completely different context.
0: And I know
1: people to, I mean, I think it's enough to understand, people to, to jive with it's a, very, it's a very personal thing to me um, some of that, that might be trouble I had with this movie because like I said there were elements of it that that worked um, but now you, you, as Robert Winfrey would say your mileage may vary when it comes to these things uh, on a subjective level so with that said uh, Alexis anything you want to add?
4: Oh, well, I think you guys pretty much said it all. Yes, this is the best, the best coming of age story that Harry goes through. He really does. He is not the same person that he was from the beginning of the book. He is a completely changed character. Mm. I will add um, that there was one change from the book that really did make me angry. It wasn't a plot hole as bad as, you know, who made the Marauder's Map, but I felt that it was a real wasted opportunity that I, I just don't – I don't really get why the filmmakers didn't touch on it.
2: The house elves?
4: Oh, no, 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 not the house elves, although oh. yeah, I, I guess I can understand why they cut that in. the book. <laughs> Hermione becomes a leading crusader for the house elves that work at Hogwarts. Just side effect
2: everyone's
4: it's... warrior. <laughs> yeah. Again, no, no, that's a good plot one, but I understand why they left that out. No, the the thing that I'm upset that they left out was basically the final scene with Cornelius Fudge. Um, this was a big setup for the fifth movie, fifth book. Uh, it, it short. I'm just going to try to condense this as quickly as I can. After Harry returns and they find out about Barty Crouch Jr., uh, they call the Minister of Magic, Cornelius Fudge. are like, okay, Voldemort's back. He's got to hear this. Get him over here. Fudge hears that they have a Death Eater, and he goes, okay. But I'm bringing a Dementor along for protection. The minute they walk into that room, the Dementor senses who Crouch Jr. is before anyone can stop him. Stop it, I should say. The Dementor gives... Barty Crouch Jr. a kiss. Uh, those of you who remember this from the third movie or the third book, the Dementor's Kiss sucks out the soul of its victims. Barty Crouch Jr. is basically brain dead. He, he, he has no memory, no self. So when they, and when they tried to explain to Cornelius Fudge why it's so horrible that they're really their only real witness who could testify this is gone, Crouch goes into complete denial mode. He refuses to believe it. Uh, he says, "No, Harry's lying. Dumbledore, you've always been trying to get power. I, I, the, the, the Dark Lord's not back. I just won't believe it." And this was, I think, a gra- and again, that was a terrific setup for the main plot of the fifth story. And when first time I saw it in theaters, I thought,
0: "Wait, no! Why are they including that scene? It was so important. It was so good."
4: And I still am a little upset. You know, I thought that was an amazing and wonderful thing where you see Cornelius Fudge, who we have seen as not the greatest character, but still understanding, fairly kind, a of, decent human being, basically suddenly going into full-on denial mode, despite everyone saying, you're wrong. You know, even uh, Severus Snape says, no, look, I've got the, de- the dark mark here on my arm. This is proof. And... Dumbledore is suddenly realizing, you know, Fudge is not going to take action. We've got to do something. Really sense up this urgency and this, okay, things are going to change. Things are going to get really important. And if, a, and if the minister isn't going to do it, we have to. And I really wish that had been in the movie. Again, it's not a plot hole, but it was so good. It was such great character development.
1: Uh, um <clears throat> they don't do a whole lot with this fudge character. He just sort of shows up occasionally, says something about the I mean up to this point, says something about the ministry of magic and then sort of disappears into the ether. He's not he's, he's not made to look very effective. And I don't know if that was mm-hmm. purposeful or not. Um I I think uh I think this is as good a place to end the discussion as any. Uh, we will be back on Tuesday, um, the next week. Uh, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them comes out. So uh, I'll be going to see that Thursday night. I'm assuming <laughs> so, so will many of you uh, who are Harry Potter fanatics. Um, so no show on Thursday. We're going to move it to Tuesday, which is good because there's, no there's no damn you Hollywood next week. So uh, we'll be talking about The Order of the Phoenix. And the Half-Blood Prince. Small correction from earlier. I got the impression that people didn't like Prisoner of Azkaban just from talking about it on Facebook. Yeah, couldn't be more wrong. Um, 86%. <laughs> 86% uh, fan score on Rotten Tomatoes for for all that's worth. I think it's like the second highest rated fan score of the entire series with uh, mm-hmm. Deathly definitely Hollows. Uh, beating it by a three, three percentage points. So, oopsie. Uh, but for shits and giggles, <laughs> the one, for the one people liked the least uh, was the Goblet of Fire. So, uh, nanny nanny um, uh The critics, on the other hand, critics, on the other hand, thought Deathly Hallows and Prisoner of Azkaban were also the two best. So, there you go. Any case, uh, so we'll be back on Tuesday. With uh, the next uh, third of uh, four parts of this series, and we're going to skip a week for Thanksgiving, and we'll come back uh, first week of December. So uh, once again, I want to thank uh, Ms. Alexis Haina for uh, coming on the show and providing her insight and knowledge of the series. <clears throat> uh, Lord, of course, and- I
4: really hope you guys will bring me in for Order of Phoenix, because that is oh, be your favorite. Order of Phoenix is mine.
1: I was going to say, implied was that you'd be with us for the remainder of this series unless you were not available. So by, by all means, you are always welcomed.
3: Yay! Hey, <laughs> next, year,
1: next year we're going to talk about the two Planes movies. You want in on that too?
4: Oh God, at least I have to actually watch that. Yeah, why not? <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's uh, I needed something for the week that Cars 3 comes out. And I was just like, hey, since Cars 3 comes out, let's talk about planes. What the hell? That's, that kind of thing <laughs> oh, goes together. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And my kids liked it. They're, they're, you know, no discerning of taste here. <laughs> um, two and five. Um, but, uh, again, one, once again, um, wonderful insights by you, Alexa. Much appreciated being on the show. Can't wait to talk to you again on oh, Tuesday. I did, I did. What? You did it again.
4: <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry, you did. And you did I say Alexa? Alexa again.
1: <laughs> I saw. I was thinking, Alexis, does that count? Um,
4: <laughs> my voice is
3: going. <laughs> you a man of it's brave.
4: Let's just say it's not officially my guest spot until Mark screws my name up at least once.
1: <laughs> it could be worse, <laughs> 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 and <a> boy, <laughs> and boy, have I done worse.
4: Uh, go ahead and
1: do your plugs <laughs> and um, anything else you want to share with the audience.
4: Uh, like I said last week, um, I run Honeysuckle Rose Creations, and we have just recently launched our new Harry Potter line. We have our Patronus Charm Bracelet, and we have two new Berets, one for Hogwarts and one for Elva which I'm probably massacring the pronunciation. Uh, that is the North American School of Magic, and according to the Pottermore verse, uh, that's honeysucklerosecreations.com. Uh, that will take you to the uh, appropriate online stores.
1: All right. Thank you very much. Sean, you're up.
2: Thank you, everybody, as always, for listening live, downloading, however you choose to enjoy us. You are the reason why we do what we do. Thank you, of course, to my bestest buddy, Alexis, for joining for joining in to fill in the gaps that I obviously would have left had she not been here. Um, thank you to Benjamin J. Cologne for the absolutely superb artwork. Uh, it's not like we actually went to Whitney Avalon and asked her permission to use the Katniss versus Hermione rap battle. So it would, be, it would really make me look like a smug little dick smack to thank her for it, I guess. But I will say... Look her and Princess rap Battles up on YouTube. Definitely. They are absolutely hilarious. Um, their renown has spread far and wide enough that she even managed to pull in the likes of uh, Sarah Michelle Geller and Yvonne Strahovski for a couple of editions as well. So you've got that to look forward to. Uh, but as far as Katniss versus Hermione, uh, Click on the video for YouTube in the comments I can tell you that you will find links to both purchase the song on iTunes and not to mention uh, to to also pick up a even Potter Thinks I'm Hotter T shirt, which is certainly worthwhile. Yeah. Yes. Um, as for your as for yours truly, uh, I do run the Facebook and Twitter accounts for Honeysuckle Rose Creations. So feel free to like and follow us on follow us on Facebook and on Twitter as well. Um, Alexis, um, at H R S C H R S creations, I believe is the Twitter.
0: Yeah,
2: I probably should memorize my own Twitter login, (laughs) but I believe that's correct. I, I, well, you, and you only handed the key, the keys to it to me just a few weeks ago. Um, (laughs) You can always find us there. We are always we are always featuring new items daily, um, and elsewhere. If for God knows what reason it's strictly my stuff that you're interested in, uh, I also write the Comer Codex over at fpgnews.com. Uh, the debut of my new music column kind of got delayed this week by a combination of work and. And Alexa Sanity. Um, it's a good way to put so, it. Yeah. So the debut of Spotify, my look at the top five new offerings every Friday every Friday on Spotify, will be now bumped to this coming weekend once I write tomorrow's edition tomorrow when new music comes out. However, uh, you can also catch me on November 20th right at dot. Dot com that evening for our first ever live streaming coverage of a WWE network special. Uh, I will be providing segment by segment, match by match, fallout and results from the 30th annual WWE Survivor series. And if you want to look at any of my previous recaps, why they are right there on the site as well. And finally, if you have any love, hate, or respectful disagreements you would like to send my way, feel free to drop them to me on Twitter at ComerCodex. Thank you to all my most faithful Potterhead friends for inspiring my love of this, this series and deepening it. That includes Alexis, Ann Alberti, Holly Christine Brown, Scarlett, uh, numerous others that I'm sure I'm forgetting. Uh, it's really bonding with you all over this that helps me to appreciate it that much more. So uh, until we talk next week, I'm Sean. You're not. I am probably not room fondle. $20 will still buy Mindy Peanuts and never dull your colors for someone else's canvas. You no, know, that was rehearsed. for my voice.
1: Uh, we took uh, lots of sorcery this week, less because we decided not to do the open. Terrible. No, that's not fair. I hated it. Uh, so instead, uh material on monday we did dr strange the oath uh damn you hollywood we reviewed the movie dr strange uh, latest from the marvel cinematic universe uh also if you go to my youtube page uh, or if you follow me on facebook i've linked to it a couple of times and then we will eventually upload it to the network uh once again myself Rob winfrey That I'd made prior to election night We talked about, which came through Talked a lot You know, because Things in a uh, Cultural uh, Historical way Led to all things that Happened on Tuesday night Five hours of coverage Before that recalls the election For Trump, I'm going to bed um, That was at two o'clock in the morning so go ahead and give that a shot. It's it's a good listen, I think, um, for people who are um, distraught over things that happen. In um, give it a listen. I think you might you know you might learn something. That might make you feel a little better. Eh, maybe it'll make you feel worse. I don't know. But I think we did a good job with it. Um, certainly better than the dopes on TV. Uh, there was no crying on that podcast. I think that much. Not a lot of laughter though. Uh, I did take the night off uh, last night from the metal hammer of doom. I I threw the show to Robert Cooper and he threw out Opeth. Instead, they reviewed uh, uh, from October the new Dark Throne album. For those of you into the black metal, uh, Thunder, Metal Hammer of Doom, Dark Throne, Arctic Thunder—that archives now. Um, next week, uh, as I said, Tuesday, Long Road to Ruin Potter part three, and, and then on Wednesday we'll be doing our annual Thanksgiving show in which we review one turkey of an album. In this case or two. God, was that awful. Almost forced me to stop being an Anthrax fan. Um, and <laughs> finally, um, Wednesday, Tuesday, November 22nd, you Hollywood review Fantastic Beast and Where to Find Them. Uh, and on Wednesday, we begin our two-part look at the new Metallica album Hardwired to Self-Destruct. Uh, we'll be reviewing the... Uh, Double album. We'll be reviewing the first album on the 23rd and the second album on the 30th. Then on December 1st, as I said before, we conclude our look, at our month-long look at Harry Potter. That's all for plugs. Uh, I appreciate uh, all of you tuned in to listen. Those of you downloaded it, uh, Sean and Alexis, uh, all wonderful. <laughs> um,
4: so with
3: that, I'll
4: I'll tell you what, I'll forgive you for the mispronunciations as long as you get the Pottermore account and by next week you tell us what your Patronus is.
1: It's a done deal. It will it will happen, I promise you. Uh, awesome. so, if, so with that said, uh, be well, be safe, and behave.